Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Thank you so much, Melanie. And uh, what a tragic story that Chinwai Chieve has, uh, has passed away. And what a book that was. Things fall apart. And hopefully we'll hear a little bit more about him, perhaps on uh, SFM Literature coming up this Sunday. But right now you're listening to Otherwise, and we are talking women. And as the Reach for Recovery International Breast Cancer Support Conference comes to a close here in Cape Town, you're going to be hearing uh, in a minute a story, a my story, the journey of Rebecca Musi. She's uh, both a survivor and an activist. And with uh, Human Rights Day yesterday, what we're looking at today here on Otherwise are the rights of the intersex individual. We'll be talking to Ntabiseng Mukwena. She's the advocacy coordinator of Transgender and Intersex Africa. Also to director of Intersex South Africa, Sally Gross. But first, we're going to start with another in our Friday series of women's organizations, groups, museums, initiatives, etc., both locally and abroad. And don't forget, if you know of one that we haven't yet featured, do let us know. Otherwise, at safm.co.za or pop us a post on our Facebook page, otherwise on SAFM. Did I say thank you to the team who are about to do their thing? Thank you very much. That's Hazel Macrozini and Rob, Rob Parkin. What's news? Well, pulling no punches, Linda Mbeki, granddaughter of Governor Mbeki, who felt that his struggle for human rights, freedom and equality had come to an end. Linda said at a human rights celebration yesterday in Cape Town that were he alive today, I would tell him he was wrong, that as women, our inviolable rights are violated daily. I would tell him our right to life has no meaning when our fathers and brothers kill us, that our right to freedom from violence is trampled on by our partners who rape and beat us. Strong words there from the granddaughter of Governor Becky. We're also on rights in a minute. We're going to be hearing in our women's organisation series uh, about the Zimbabwean Women's Centre Lupani. Um, well, it's, in fact, it's a women's centre in Lupani, so it's called the Lupani Women's Centre. But right now, Zimbabwean top human rights lawyer Beatrice Mchetwa remains in detention, having been arrested on Sunday while apparently for shouting at detectives during a police raid on their offices. Award-winning Mchetwa has represented uh, Prime Minister Morgan Sangarai and his supporters in a number of high-profile cases. And a salute, although few in number, to a group of men dressed in high heels and dresses who yesterday took to the streets of Peter Maritzburg, calling for an end to the abuse of women and children. It's time that we say enough is enough, said Youth in Action Ambassador Lungelo Sitoli. Women are beautiful creatures, he said, who must be treated with love and respect. If every man can take a stand, we will have a society in which our vulnerable members feel free. Gender-based violence affects not only women, but their partners and relatives as well, he said, and wasn't that nice. Apparently they battled a bit on those high heels, they had to take them off to get themselves up the hill, but well done, guys, <laughs> with a nice one. And just on beauty and beautiful creatures, according to a, a U.S. study, women reach the peak of their beauty age 30 and men at 34. Well, I'm really not sure how useful that bit of information is, but something to open the discussion in case you didn't have enough to talk about. You're listening to Otherwise. Stay with us. Have you tried booking accommodation online? Booking online means the best rates and widest selection. But which website can you trust? I found that TravelGround.com is the easiest way to find and book accommodation online. And with their great customer service, you can rest assured that you're in safe hands. So whether you need a hotel in Santon or a great little guest house in Franchuk, go online to www.travelground.com. Travelground.com, the easiest way to find and book accommodation across South Africa. Scalpel? Nurse, hand me the... What was that? What happened? Power's out, Doctor. What? Well, when does the generator kick in? I don't know, but she's going into shock, Doctor. Her heart's failing. I need that machine. Every year, innocent lives are lost due to electricity theft. 
Report electricity theft anonymously by sending an SMS to 33311. SMSs cost one rand. Operation Kanisa. The power is in your hands. The African Passion set to tour South Africa for Easter 2013. Catalina Unlimited, in partnership with SAFM, proudly presents the world premiere of The African Passion, a new gospel opera written and directed by Temi Venturas, with music composed by Penelani Nomia, Anthony Gavinda, and the young Mbazo. The African Passion, inspiring audiences across the country this Easter. For dates, go to www.catalinatheatre.co.za. Bookings also at CompuTicket throughout South Africa. The African Passion, a new gospel opera. Otherwise, on SAFM. Otherwise, it is coming to you from Cape Town, another city talking women. And first up on the show in our series on women's organizations, both here at home and across the world, Today, the Lupani Women's Centre, it's in Zimbabwe, and their mission is to facilitate the unleashing of an entrepreneurial spirit among women so that they may engage in economic and social development activities for poverty alleviation. Well, earlier I spoke to manager Hildegard Mfukari to find out more. Uh, the organisation, Lupani Women's Centre, was started by 14 rural women who used to weave baskets. And while they were weaving baskets, they would try and sell them by the roadside to tourists, and they would also get some people would come through to buy the baskets. And they decided uh, it would be easier if they could form a larger group and market it in an organized way. That's how the center was started. And after that, um, 14 women were very lucky because the local member of parliament identified them and he went out to the American Peace Corps and sought volunteer to help them. The volunteer, Mrs. Claire Rake, was from Belgium. She worked with the women from 1997. And in 2003, she decided she wanted to go back to her home. But the women pleaded with her and they said, maybe you need to put us up some infrastructure so that we can actually continue the work that we have started. So she went back and sourced funds for the women, and they constructed a very beautiful center where the women continued to work, and they have continued to work to date. Gosh, and are they still making baskets, or have they have they extended their range? The women still make baskets, but they have diversified. Um, when we started, they were making traditional baskets. And later on, they moved on to make contemporary products. We have had some funding from Liechtenstein Development Service, which has helped a lot with the running of the center from 2004 until this date. And what the women have done is they have gone on to engage some designers. We have even had some work with some people from South Africa, a new basket workshop, from South Africa and Design Africa have worked with us a lot in designing contemporary products. We've also worked with Heath Nash from Heath Studios from South Africa as well. We have helped us. We have worked with Craft Trust from South Africa. They have worked with us to help us develop the business side of our organization. 
You mentioned Heath Nash there. Do you work a lot with natural products or recycled material? We work with natural products. We work with Ilana. Ilana is some kind of palm, um, which is found locally. And we also work with Faisal. So we work mainly with natural products. And we work even with natural dyes as well. So it's a very sustainable product that you're using? It is, yes. Uh, and to ensure continuity, we have even gone on to plant our own fields of Ilala. So that... We do not run short of the resource. How many women are part of Lupani now? We have a total of 3,502 women. That is huge. Are they, uh, are, they, are they spread right across the country? No, they are. We, in, in Zimbabwe, we've got what we call district. So Lupani is a district. And the women that we work with are mainly from the district of Lupani. The district of Lupane is found in Matabirele and North. So we work with the women in the whole district of Lupane. You know, to uh, make a reasonable living for that amount of women, you need to sell a lot of products. Where do you market them? We've been very lucky. Like I was talking about the new basket workshop. The, the new basket workshop has linked us with quite a number of markets. Design Africa is one of the markets. They are found in Cape Town. We send some of our products to South Africa. And then um, the lady, the men who sells them in South Africa, also sells them to her customers. I'm not aware who her customers are. But we also have markets uh, in Germany, in Switzerland, in the UK, in Holland, and regionally in Botswana and Zambia. So you certainly got, uh, got worldwide coverage. And do you have designers who uh, keep updating your work? I mean, do you keep changing the range, keep changing the product? Yes, we do engage designers. We're very fortunate because really we haven't had to pay for designers. We have had people coming in to assist us, maybe through this linkage with the new basket workshop. Francis Porter, who is in charge of the new basket workshop, is so well connected. So every time she'll find somebody who is very good with designing, she'll help us. We, the Indian government has also assisted us, the same designers, to help us. And we've also worked with um, Pinky Women. Currently, we are working with Gail Mawocha. Gail also works with Tintara in Swaziland. Just moving away from the product and, and thinking about the women, 3,000-odd women, has it changed their lives significantly? Um, what we have focused on really is we focused on the individual woman. Although we see them as a large number, uh, they experience different things in their individual lives. So the first thing that we have had to deal, deal with is the mindset really changing them and making sure that they see them as equal partners with men in the development of their community. It doesn't take a day, but it's something that has really happened because we've seen our women move from the background and come out to start doing other activities that they were not really able to do. We've seen them coming out to even take up leadership positions. They've 
come up to be counselors, for instance, uh, in their wards. We have seen the women coming out to earn and living and maybe bring a change to their families. So the mindset has been changed. And then we've also looked at the economic empowerment. We do not just look at crafts. We are also into agricultural activities. And the women are really involved uh, in agricultural activities. We've people who are into rearing goats for sale, indigenous chickens. We also do a bit of gardening, and we are into beekeeping. Mm. And then they have all these other cottage industries that they are into, like making soap, making candles. Um, and for soap, we actually use a certain kind of seed from Jatropha, and we pick it up from the from the bush, and the women make soap from that. It seems like the organization is sort of growing in leaps and bounds in a very organic way. How do you see its future? Do you see it growing or do you, in numbers, or do you see it perhaps breaking down into different groups? We actually foresee the organization growing and maybe growing into other groups because right now we are operating in one district. But we've had a lot of people from other districts coming in to seek uh, membership. For the time being, we haven't been able to take them up, but we really foresee a situation where we are going to grow and the organization might end up with different groups in different districts and it might actually have a regional impact. I'm sure it will, and perhaps a generational impact. I'm just wondering if you have now um, reached a point where some of the daughters of the original women uh, are taking part, or do you see that younger women may have a different vision for their future? I think the younger women might have a different vision, but they will probably ride on the steps that the organization has taken. Uh, Because as you can see, the organization is not just given the people skills, it has also fostered some group formations which are very, very strong. The women are able to support one another. They do not just support one another in terms of economic activities. We've seen them going out to assist each other, addressing issues like gender-based violence, addressing issues like HIV and AIDS, issues to deal with health, issues to do to deal with the environment. So we can see that really there is quite a large expanse of knowledge that is being shared among women. And there's so much support for the woman. We've seen widows being taken up by other women and assisted. We've seen orphans being assisted as well. So even for the young women, it's going to be a relevant organization. And that was uh, Hildegard Mufukare, and uh, she's the uh, manager for the Lupane Women's Centre in Zimbabwe. And what an incredible amount of women that they're helping there. If you'd like to know a little bit more about it, it's, uh, the website is Lupane Women's Centre. That's L-U-P-A-N-E, Lupane Women's Centre.org. 
And uh, we will be having, next Friday, we'll be having another women's organisation that's either locally at home. And don't forget, once again, let me just uh, urge you, if you do know any women's organisations, museums, uh, initiatives, projects, whatever, right here at home in South Africa or elsewhere in Africa or elsewhere across the planet, do let us know. You can let us know uh, otherwise at safm.co.za or pop us a message on our Facebook page, which is otherwise on SAFM. Well, we're hoping to get hold of uh, a guest who's been taking part in the uh, Reach for Recovery, Reach to Recovery, in fact, Reach to Recovery International Breast Cancer Support Conference. Going to be hearing her story in a minute, but we're battling to get hold of her. So we're going to leave her for a little while. So we're going to move on to our next issue, which, of course, is the issue of the rights of the intersex individual. As you know, it was Human Rights Day yesterday, and I suspect that quite a number of people felt that their rights may perhaps have fallen well below the radar. Going to be talking in a minute, we're going to be talking to Sally Gross, who is the director of an organisation called Intersex South Africa. But right now we have on the line Tabi Seng Mokwena. She's the advocacy coordinator of Transgender and Intersex Africa. Got her on the line. Hi, I'm Tabi Singh. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Thanks very much. Thank Tabi you. Tabi let's, let's clear up a few things first and foremost. Your organisation is called Transgender and Intersex. Can you explain to us the difference between the two? Um, well, uh, Transgender and Intersex Africa, we advocate for uh, transgender and intersex human rights. And then Intersex, according to the Promotion of Equality and Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act, is mm-hmm. defined as a congenital sexual differentiation, which is atypical to whatever degree. So basically an intersex person is a person, you know, in the loose sense of the word, that is born between male and female, physically born that way. In other words, it is a person with uh, congenital differences whose sex chromosomes or their gonads or their internal or external sexual anatomy does not fit clearly into the male and female binary system. For example, some intersex women may be born with typically female-appearing genitalia yet internally have no ovaries, but they would have undescended testes. Other intersex uh, people are born with genitalia that does not appear to be clearly male or female. Uh, uh, One of the biggest examples is uh, intersex women that are born with large clitorises. But not all intersex variations are visible and are evident at birth. You know, some only uh, become evident uh, when the child reaches puberty um, and viralization might happen or the child um, fails to menstruate. So that is basically um, in a nutshell intersex. Whereas transgender, on the other hand, is an umbrella term uh, used to describe behaviors or identities of people whose gender identity or their gender expression does not necessarily conform with the binary sex norm or may be different from the sex assigned to them at birth. So in other words, uh, intersex is about anatomy, it's about sexual development, whereas transgender is about gender identity and gender expression. Okay, thank you for, clearly you've done that before, you've put that very succinctly. So transgender gender expression is a whole other area that I think that we're going to leave for the moment because I think let's let's keep this absolutely clear because... Somebody contacted us to say, you know, I hope that you're going to, on Human Rights Day, I hope you're going to be thinking seriously about the rights of transgender and intersex individuals. And it was made very clear to us that the two were very different uh, situations. So let's stay with intersex. 
Um, so in in the website that I found, it's a it's a general term that can relate to various conditions, various conditions. Um, but many intersex people are born with ambiguous genitalia or sex organs, as you've just explained. Yes. However, it can relate to various conditions. Can you elaborate on what those conditions are? Um, as I say, there are different forms of intersex, and I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes that have been made uh, in the intersex movement is that it's been it's been sort of um, emphasized that intersex is always you know about genitals. That it's always when, um, uh, for example, when uh, when the genitals are ambiguous, but it's not always. Um, um, always dependent on the genitals. Some intersex conditions, for example, as I said, are not evident at birth, and the child will only um, recognize that they are medically intersex uh, when they reach puberty. Mm. For example, uh, you find that um, um, there are certain, um, some intersex variations, maybe a person is born with chromosomes pattern that not fall into the binary. For example, we all know that um, according to the binary system, females have got the XX chromosomes and the male have got XY chromosomes. But then there are intersex variations, whereas the person does not fall into those binary. A person might have XXY chromosomes. And it is very difficult to actually uh, notice that at birth um, because it will probably only become evident later on in life, you know, mm. uh, when the doctors realize that this chromosome pattern does not fall into the binary. Or when the child reaches puberty and they were born female and they were raised female and they begin to viralize that puberty and they begin to become very masculine. So those are some of the situations that can happen under um, the intersex spectrum. Can you just explain that term you've used, viralize? Um, uh, viralizing, <laughs> uh, uh, it's quite difficult to explain that. Um, uh, what happens is that um, if you're born with uh, some other forms of intersex mm. and then you were born um, and it was not noticed that you were intersex at birth, for example, and you were born very uh, female and very typically female and you were raised female, but then only when you get to puberty and your body uh, uh, tries to make uh, secondary sexual characteristics, for example, and then your body would then take the opposite of what was assigned to you at birth. In other words, if you were assigned female at birth, then your body would take the opposite direction and you would start to look more masculine. Okay. You'd start to produce um, masculine hormones more or you'd start, your body would start looking more masculine. Yeah. And that is a form of viralizing. Yeah. The other term you used was uh, referring to transgender when it's, you know, it's all about gender expression. And I'm just thinking about this this intersex person who's, who's, um, whose identity may be changing, particularly when they get to puberty, which is a difficult time for everybody, uh, where you know, a person is looking at their identity. So quite difficult for that individual to deal with where they're going. It is. Like, uh, for example, um, I myself was born intersex, and mm. what happened is that at birth, my parents chose not to have any surgery done on me, which was an excellent choice, I believe, because, you know, I was saved from the trauma of unconsensual surgery, non-consensual surgery. But then because I was born female, and I clearly identified as female, and I loved being female growing up, when I had puberty, I was, you know, I was quite traumatized at, at, at first, because, you know, certain things would happen to me, or to happen to other girls and they would happen to me. Some girls would, for example, would reach the periods and I wouldn't be able to, mm-hmm. and I didn't. Or some girls would develop breasts and develop secondary sexual characteristics, and I couldn't do that. So it was very confusing for me. But then I later realized that, you know, um, 
the confusion didn't come because I'm intersex, really. The confusion came because this uh, intersex is seen as such a shameful thing that is not mm-hmm. talked about. Mm-hmm. In other words, I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anybody that I could go to and explain to them and explain my frustration about what is going on. The only people that I could do that with were the doctors. And then the doctors, on the other hand, did not really care about my frustrations. Mm-hmm. The only thing that they were actually very, very much... Um, uh, cared about was letting me have surgery, wanting to do surgery on me, regardless of the fact that I did not want surgery at that point. Yes, I can see where the human right comes into this. Exactly. But interesting that you say that I couldn't, I I couldn't have periods. Almost like you're sort of blaming yourself, but uh, clearly you've moved on from those sort of issues. And Tabby's saying, stay with us. We're going to take a quick break for the news headlines. We also have Sally Gross on the line. She's the director for Intersex South Africa, so we'll be picking this up again right after the news headlines. Stay with us. Thanks very much, Melanie. But right now, it's otherwise. We're talking women, and right now we're actually talking intersex, intersex individuals and their rights thereof. Because clearly, from everything Chabis Singh Mukwena, who's the uh, uh, she, the title is advocacy coordinator with transgender and intersex. Clearly, rights comes into it. Chabis Singh, quite early on in life, if, if I can just clear up, you say that your parents chose not to have any surgery done, and it would have infringed your rights. If they had chosen to have surgery done, at what age might that have happened, and why would they have chosen to do it? Um, well, according to standard medical protocols, uh, most doctors in South Africa actually um, um, encourage parents that the surgery on the child should be done in the first year of the child, in other words, in the infant stages, or in some cases you find that doctor will say before the child actually reaches four years of age, and most of the time you find that the surgery is not really necessary, it is just a cosmetic surgery, you know what I mean, because as um, human rights activists, for example, uh, we are saying that doctors should stop encouraging non-consensual and unnecessary surgery, not necessarily the fact that we are against surgery, but we feel that uh, the rights of the individual must be respected and it must be up to the individual um, most of the time to actually determine what is done to their bodies. Um, So if, you know, if my parents would have consented to surgery, in the first year of my life I would have had that surgery and most likely I would have had other surgeries throughout my life. What would have happened and... Would it, how would it have affected you physically and mentally? But start with physically. Mentally would be more difficult. Uh, well, well, one thing about me is that growing up, I blamed my parents that mm. why didn't they want surgery? Because I felt that surgery could was you know was this idea of paradise for me. You know, I felt that if I got surgery, then life would be great for me. So I always blamed my parents because I wanted surgery to be done, and I felt like this uh, freakish um, thing, you know, this creature, you know, because this thing was not even talked about. Intersex was not talked about in my community or even in my family. But then I think uh, later in life, when I, I got into intersex human rights and I met more and more intersex people, and I must say that 95% of the intersex people that I've met are intersex people who have had surgery, especially in the first years of their lives. And none of these people that I've met is actually grateful for having had that surgery so early in life and not having, been, not having consented to that surgery. So only when I realized the trauma that the surgery had brought to most of them, 
the you know the the sense of being lied to by their parents because most of them surgery was done to them and their parents never told them anything about them about it. I felt very grateful that at least my parents were liberal enough actually to escape that trap. Yeah. Very difficult for parents because when your parents are in, in the in your, your child's rights are in your hands as a parent, it's very difficult and as you say, not very much talked about. So a person might not know which way to do which which what would be the best thing to do because you what you're talking about is being born typically female and changing at puberty. Can it happen the other way that one is born typically male and changes at puberty as well? Um, I, what I'm saying is that I was brought up typically female. Yeah, yeah, but then what happened is that uh, with me, I was born with ambiguous genitalia. So from the time I was born, doctors could see that I'm intersex because the genitalia, they couldn't decide whether I am female or male. But then my parents chose to raise me as female but still refuse surgery. Tabby Singh, I'm going to, before we let you go, we're going to get your website because I'm sure there are an awful lot of people who perhaps are feeling... Uh, confused, uh, angry, uh, perhaps haven't come to the realizations that you've come and maybe above all would perhaps need some support. But we're not going to let you go just yet, but we will get your website. In fact, it's transgenderintersexafrica.co.za. Is that right? Yes, yes Tran- that's our website. Uh, we also have a, a bit of a problem with our website. You can find us on Facebook okay. uh, at, at Transgender and Intersex Africa or email us. Okay. Okay, so that's also Facebook Transgender Intersex Dot, uh, Africa. Yes. So, um, Sally, we've got you on the line. Sally, Director of Intersex South Africa. Uh, Sally, can you give us an idea? And from listening to what Ntabi Singh says, it might be quite difficult. Do we have any idea of numbers of intersex people in South Africa? We don't actually have statistics mm. uh, as such for uh, intersex people in South Africa. You know, uh, there's some desultory collection of statistics in this hospital or that hospital, but there's been absolutely nothing systematic. But um, an intersex activist friend of mine in Australia who uh, has been crunching rather good Australian statistics Mm. and has come up with a figure of 1.65% kind of big-time intersex. And, um, Is that 1.65% mean, of the population in Australia? 1.65%. Okay. Um, and, I mean, it's probably a good thumbs up globally. Mm. Um, uh, Professor Milton Diamond, who's probably, you know, one of the leading experts on intersex, uh, tends to cite 1.7% as a kind of a ballpark figure that uh, people with expertise agree on. Yeah. Uh, prevalence big time. Would, would one be right in thinking that possibly that's, that's a, lo- a lower figure than the reality simply because of what Ntabi Seng was saying, it's shameful, it's not talked about in many communities, nobody would know? Um, it, it may be slightly lower. I mean, I define intersex as uh, sexual differentiation from development in the womb which is not typical, in other words, it doesn't follow the typical paths of male and female to whatever degree. And I mean construed in that sense, again, it could be 4 or 5%. Mm. In what way do you, th- interesting again to hear that Tabi Singh was saying that her rights may 
may or may not have been infringed whether or not she did or didn't have surgery, medically speaking. But in what other ways do you feel that an intersex individual's rights are violated? Uh, well, I mean, I can talk of my own experience. Mm. I was a member for a good many years of a Catholic religious order. I was reared as male. Um, I was actually a priest when I discovered that I'm intersex. And when I disclosed that I, I'm intersex, I found myself uh, pushed rather unceremoniously and rather brutally out of the world and out of the church and out of communion. I mean, basically, my whole life was destroyed. Yes, indeed, that would have been very hard to deal with. So you discovered as an adult? Yes, at the age of 40. At the age of 40. Is that, is that common? I mean, is there a norm here? Um, I... I'm, I'm not sure how, how common or uncommon it is. Mm. I mean, it's part of the standard medical practice has been to try to avoid using the H, hermaphrodite word or the I word, to, um, you know, not to tell people the truth about their own bodies, uh, to be as economical with the truth with parents as possible. Um, you know, I was born back in 1953. Um, so... You know, I had not an inkling. I um, have ambiguous genitalia. I assume that there are relevant differences. Uh, you know, that we, are yeah. not, we, we, we don't all come in a kind of standard sizes and uh, shapes and all the rest of it, and that I was actually perhaps at an extreme of the spectrum. I didn't mm. realize I was off the map. It took a while for the penny to drop there. To what extent, a question for both of you, I suppose, let's come back to you. To what extent is choice involved here? You know, one of the, one of the great human rights of the whole world is, is choice, and it feels like choice may not be something that either of you have had much of. And Tabby Singh? Uh, uh, yeah, that is quite a difficult question. But I believe that every individual has the right to make decisions about their bodies. And that's one thing that we really would want um, the medical sector to actually um, know, that sometimes, you know, decisions are made for the child on, uh, on their gender and on their sex, only to find out that when they grow up, that is not the choice that they would have made. And I do understand that it is extremely difficult for parents um, most of the time, but then what happens with um, the South African standard medical protocols most of the time, that parents are not given enough information so that they may be able to make the right choice. Surgery is most of the time the one that is pushed forward and the one that is really encouraged by doctors. And what people do not realize is that these surgeries are irreversible and they have a traumatic experience on the individual. So the idea of choice really comes in because... If you're going to cut up my genitals and because you, this is what you would like me to look like, it not, does not necessarily mean that that is how I want to look like. So the idea of choice is really, 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 really important, especially when you consider the human rights of the individual. Yeah. Uh, Sally, on your website you refer to something as best guess surgical strategy, best guess yes. surgical. What is that? What does that mean? Well, I mean, we live in um, a strongly kind of sex and gender stereotyped set of societies. And I don't think that it would be a good idea to foist a label of intersex or of indeterminate sex on a, a kind of a newborn baby. 
and let you know the baby kind of grow up into childhood with some kind of third sex or what have you. Um, it makes um, a great deal more sense when a baby is born, and there you know there are ambiguities to run tests to see what is actually going on. Are there medical issues underneath that which need to be addressed? I mean, one particular syndrome, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, um, which comes in two forms, can be severely life-threatening and needs lifelong treatment. I mean, that's not, you know, intersex in and of itself, but it's a um, medical condition which is accompanied by, as it were, mm. often, um, an intersex body type. Um, and, you know, on the basis of what's actually found, specific syndrome, if it can be determined and so on, to make a best guess at optimal gender of rearing, um, you know, for the baby, yeah. um, as male or female, but to watch that baby and that child and to be attentive to the comfort of, you know, the toddler, the child. And, I mean, if, if it isn't comfortable for the toddler or the child, change it. Mm. You know, without kind of compunction. I don't mean surgically, but, I mean, in terms of rearing. We don't yeah. walk around. Yeah. Do we with our genitalia on display? No, we don't. We don't. And a lot of things that we don't display, not least our feelings. And I think, but what you do have on your website is a great deal of information. I think if there are any parents who are in doubt or feeling a little bit unsupported, it would be a very good place to start and have a look. Sally Gross, thank you very much. Sally is the director of Intersex South Africa, and the website is intersex. Intersex.org.za. Tabby saying just lastly for you in terms of rights, in terms of gay rights, LGBTI, I is very much at the end. The T and the I are right there at the end. Do you feel sometimes even within the, the gay spectrum, as it were, that transgender and intersex rights are overlooked? Uh, I definitely feel that. I feel that in South Africa, for example, most of the time we speak of the LGBTI movement, but then mm. you find that the LGBTI movement in South Africa is not actually that. It's actually just the LG movement. Mm. It's the lesbian and gay movement most of the time. And transgender issues and intersex issues are often overlooked. And most of the time people will say, no, we can really speak on intersex or we can't really represent intersex right because we've never seen an intersex person. And what I always say is that don't say you've never seen an intersex person. Say you've never seen a visibly out and proud intersex person. But that does not stop you, actually, in beginning conversations about intersex. It does not stop you from learning and educating yourself and sensitizing yourself about intersex, you know, for those very situations where other people need information about intersex or transgender. So most of the time, yes, I feel that in South Africa there is sort of a division between LGB rights and trans and intersex rights. Yeah. But then, yeah, there's always room to improve and really come together and work around those. Well, at least we started the conversation and there's, I suspect there's a huge amount more to say. But thank you. Thanks very much, Ntabi. So I'm going to give out your website or refer people to your Facebook page, which is Transgender Intersex Africa, because the website's not working so well at the moment. Ntabi Singh Mokwena, thank you very much. Take care.
where they go transgender intersex Africa and also intersex if you would like to know more check those websites it seems you should not be battling alone if it's an issue that's in your family listen to otherwise stay with us otherwise with Nancy Richards don't forget if you'd like to share your story, uh, any information that you need or that you'd like to share with us here on Otherwise or a Woman's Programme, and broadly speaking, you're welcome. Otherwise at safm.co.za or pop us a post on Facebook, it's Otherwise on SAFM. Well, finally, a story we were trying to get hold of earlier. We've got Rebecca Musi on the line. She's a breast cancer survivor and activist, and she's, I think she's been taking part in the uh, Reach for Recovery International Breast Cancer Support Conference. In fact, it may be Reach to Recovery International Breast Cancer Support Conference coming to a close here in Cape Town. Rebecca, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you so much. Good nice afternoon. Lovely. Thank you. Rebecca, tell us your story. You had, you had breast cancer when? I had, I was diagnosed in 2001 okay. and I only started my treatment early 2002. Uh, you know, just prior to me finding the lump, I had been in a woman's uh, get-together mm-hmm. and one of the ladies who was invited as a speaker told us about breast self-examination and it was the first time I heard about it and I thought oh how weird you know Mm. and I started checking my breast not so regularly every month but kind of you know now and then did it when I remembered Mm. and lo and behold I found the lamp and I thought oh what a horrible woman she (laughs) brought it unto me (laughs) (laughs) so you blamed her immediately (laughs) yes But after the shock and everything, um, I gathered myself and went to the hospital to get the lump checked, and it was diagnosed as breast cancer. And, yeah, it was a shock, a disbelief and everything, and uh, I started my treatment. Um, She's a good friend of mine now because Mm. she saved my life. Yeah, yeah, for (laughs) sure. But but I can understand, you know, that one does sort of put these things together. When you were diagnosed, did they tell you how far, how, how grown the tumour was, how long you'd had it? Well, you know, it's quite difficult. You know, the doctor will tell you all these things, but the only two words that stick in your head that day is breast cancer. Mm. You know, your mind is going through a whole turmoil. So you can't actually remember everything. Yes, I know she she told me how far it was, what was going to happen, but it was look all like gibberish. Yeah. Yes. And all I wanted to do was walk out of her rooms. But, you know, she was trying to help me. Yeah, walk out of the rooms and pretend it never happened. It, it only made sense a couple of months later when I was much calmer and I had now accepted and was focused. Only then, you know, as I went along, all these new words in my vocabulary started making sense. You know, lumpectomy, first time you hear it, what is that? Chemotherapy, what the hell is that? Mm. Yes. 
Did you find anybody else in your circle of friends that you could talk to? You know, because not knowing about checking your breasts, not knowing those things is, is something a lot it occurs for a lot of women. A lot of women are just sort of ignorant of it until it happens. So did you find anybody that you could talk to who wasn't going to be shocked or, or who understand where, understood where you were coming from? Well, thanks for asking that question because it took me a while besides telling my family it took me a while to speak to someone else because I sat there and thought, you know, I don't want to tell someone who will say, ah, shame, mm. when are you going to die? <laughs> so um, it took me a while and ultimately, you know, in my circle of friends and, and people I knew, I approached one lady who accepted me and was very supportive. She hadn't gone through that. However, she became my pillar of support. She would remind me of or send me, call me in the morning or the evening before my appointment or whatever. Or sometimes, you know, as a single parent, she would even say to me, please, Rebecca, where is your son? And I say, he's still at school. Say, okay, fine. Cry now and go into your morning period. And then just before she comes back, Go to the bathroom, wash your face, put on makeup, and he finds you very well. <laughs> oh, God. Doesn't everybody need a friend just like that? Just, and, and yeah. I didn't know about look good, feel better, but mm. there she was doing look good, yeah, feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Look good, feel better is that organization where they help people who are undergoing that sort of... Give us the good news, because that was back in 2002. Here you are chatting to us, and you hadn't died, and you're able to tell us your story. How was the treatment? Well, the treatment, for me, the treatment was, it wasn't that aggressive. I actually cruised. I did a lumpectomy, did my six months of chemo, radiation, and then five years of hormone therapy. Now, through chemo, radiation, and surgery, I wasn't, like, sick. Mm. Yeah, I, I managed through that, cruised very well, not many nausea, you know, uh, or vomiting sessions, except for one where I had, um, I just come back from my chemo, got onto a bus home, and because I, I was going to get off the furthest, there were just about five people in the bus, and this guy decided to smoke, and the whole thing came through my mouth, and I had to use my dress to to cover the mess. Yeah. Oi. But now, what hit me and my employer, my employer and my colleagues just thought, wow, well done. And everybody thinks when your hair grows back, everything is halal. Yeah. But there was something I didn't know then called chemo brain. And that hit me. And I didn't understand what was happening. My performance level went down. I couldn't remember things. My boss got mad with me. I was in boss's office every day being asked and my, my file was nearly like an encyclopedia because every day I was given a notice that now your performance, what's happening to you 
And I didn't know. Yeah. And I lost that job. Rebecca, sadly, we've come to a close, but your story is a really, really important one. And now you're the woman who's telling other women to check their breasts. And I hope that you're making a lot of friends for helping, having helped, having saved their lives as well. Rebecca Musi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Best of thank luck. you. Take Bye. care. Rebecca is with the Breast Health Foundation. Next up, uh, it's time for Shop Shop, the children's program. Children's program on SFM with Leon Fisher. Welcome, everybody. Hi, kids. Hi, parents. Hello, listeners. Say hello, blessing. Say hello, Layla. So you might have guessed, today we are talking about our bodies. Firstly kids, what part of the body do you know? Yes. Yes to hear music with. Correct. Eyes. Yes, go guys, excellent. Wow, go. Give us another one. Fingers. And another one. On a roll, keep it going. More, please. Excellent. Yay! Elbow? Now that's an interesting one. Your elbow is like a hinge between your upper arm and forearm and helps you to bend your arms, like when you're showing off your muscles. Here's a song. I got two ears, two knees, one chin, two cheeks to squeeze, two lungs, one heart, a beautiful brain, and I'm so smart. It's good to be, it's good to be alive, and it is good to be. It was a lot of fun writing that song. I hope you enjoyed it too. Here are some interesting facts about your bodies, kids. Listen up. Your skin is your biggest organ. And to keep your skin healthy, what can you do? You drink lots of water. How many glasses should we drink a day? And your heart is a muscle too. Why do we do exercise? A typical adult human skeleton consists of 206 bones. That's a lot. What do you need to make your bones strong? Calcium. You can get calcium by drinking milk. I wrote another song about our bodies. And here it is. Remember to dance along if you want. 
And it's off my album called Our Beautiful Country. Well, that was fun. And we learned so much about our bodies at the same time. That's it from us today. Connect with us on Facebook at Shop Shop on SAFM. We'd like to thank Rob Parkin, Cassie Lowers, our technical producers, and Kim Winter, our producer, for all their good work. Signing off, I'm Leon Fisser. And remember to keep it shop shop. And here is shop shop, it's shop shop. From the farm road and down to the city and it's shop shop. It's shop shop. From the taxi lands to the coastal city and it's shop shop. It's shop shop. From the monument down to Church Street. Shop shop, it's shop shop. It's central town where all the people meet. There'll be more Sharp Sharp next week. There'll also be more Otherwise next week. And if you were listening earlier to Rebecca Moussi, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about her and her story, www.mybreast.org.za. It's two o'clock just after time for the news with Melanie Moses.